So Hebrews chapter 4, this is our last sermon in Hebrews. Uh, For the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Luke in the month of December and and looking at the songs uh, that that come from the mouths of some of the characters in in Luke as an Advent series, as an opportunity for us to um, prepare uh, and, and um, enter into the, the Advent season. Um, and so that will be next week. We'll, we'll be first looking in, in Luke chapter 1. Um, but this week we are in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 of Hebrews 4. Uh, and so uh, as we look at, at this passage, I want to, um, I want to make... Kind of, I want to set the stage because what happens in, in Hebrews 4 is the author of Hebrews kind of lays out um, three points on this, this salvation history timeline and understanding these three points and how they relate to one another helps us understand the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. And so the three, three points that he lays out that, that you'll see as we read the, the text in just a minute, uh, but, but first point is the Genesis 2 creation account, which Will just read, but, but he, he looks at day seven of the creation account, and he looks at the, the reality of God resting. And, and he, he uses the Genesis account um, of day seven to say that God rests. And that rest, God's rest, is something that existed before the Exodus and before the entrance into Canaan. And so, so that's going to be the first point, is understanding that God's rest began after day six of creation. Then the second point on this little timeline is going to be the wilderness generation. And so he talked about that last, last or Will talked about that last week, and the author talked about it at the end of, of chapter three, but specifically the wilderness generation in Numbers 14, when they're offered um, the, the ability to, to enter into the promised land, but they refuse and they rebel and God judges them in the wilderness for their refusal. And those were the ones at the end of chapter three, up in verses 16 through 19, when the author asks all these rhetorical questions, highlighting the, the inability of this wilderness generation to enter the rest that God was willing to provide them. And so they were prevented, God's people in the wilderness generation were prevented from entering that rest. They didn't make it. So that's the middle point. That, that's something that happens. So you have creation, then you have the wilderness generation. And then point three is, is what he, he mentioned last week with Psalm 95, where he quotes Psalm 95, but he focuses on one word from Psalm 95, and that word is today. And so he uses Psalm 95, and he says there in, in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And so he, he's going to look at Psalm 95 and say, there was a today where the rest was available today when that was written, which was long after the wilderness gener- generation. And so his point there is to say that the, the rest was not limited to the wilderness generation. It, it wasn't Canaan. And so these three points on this timeline are going to be crucial for us to, to recognize and understand in order to, to, to make sense of this passage. So we have creation, wilderness generation, and today. And to, to show um, a continue. So, so he, he, he's going to map out this argument, and the whole point of this, this passage of these first 13 verses of chapter 4 is to show the continuation of God's rest and the necessity of those who've received the message of the good news of Christ to, to persevere in their faith. 
And so the author of Hebrews wants us, just like he wanted his first readers, to learn a lesson from the wilderness generation. He he wants his readers, he wants us to heed God's voice and to do so today and to continue to heed the voice of God until God's rest is fully entered. And so those are the three timeline stops that that if we understand those, we're able to recognize really to to make sense of the, the point of this passage, which simply is strive to enter God's rest. That's the main idea. You ought to, as a believer, as someone who's heard the good news of Jesus Christ, you ought to strive to fully enter God's rest, and and you ought to not fail to reach it. And so we'll see at the beginning of the passage, there's a call, let us fear, lest anyone seem to have failed to reach the rest. And the passage ends, verse 11, let us strive that, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience like those in the desert. So, so the passage is, is bookended by this, this you, you ought to enter, you need to strive, you need to make sure that you persevere and you enter God's rest. So this passage is about entering God's rest. And he continues to focus on Psalm 95, which he picked up last week, but, but last week, Psalm 95 was used, used really to show the danger of hardened hearts. So, so it was a, a, a sobering passage that said, don't let an evil, unbelieving heart lead you astray, so that you fall away. So, so last week, in the words of, of one commentator, last week's use of Psalm 95 cut sharply in the warning based on the wilderness generation provoking God's anger and perishing. So there's a danger, and Psalm 95 is used to warn them in that sense. But this week, the author continues to draw from Psalm 95, but, it, but he, he draws from Psalm 95 a, a word of promise that is intended to give hope to the listeners. That, that's what he does. He, he warns them and tells them the danger, but then he gives them hope and encourages them. And so this, this passage, he, he shows from Psalm 95 that, that God's rest and entering God's rest is still possible. And so he wants them to, to ensure that they enter it. Okay, so, so let's read. You can, you can follow along in your Bibles or on your phones, um, or you can just listen. I'm gonna read the first 13 verses of Hebrews chapter four. And then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll work through these verses. So verse 1, Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard, that's the wilderness generation, it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we we who have believed enter that rest. As As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua would have given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Well, let, let me pray for us as we, as we seek to, to learn from, from this passage. Now, Father, I ask that you would give wisdom and that you would provoke, generate, that encourage perseverance among your people this morning. May we strive to enter that rest and may we do so holding fast to Christ, uh, who is the one who has purchased our pardon and enables us to enter God's rest. So, so help us now, be our teacher, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so we, we've, got, we've got four passages here. I, I don't think my PowerPoint came through, um, so you're just gonna have to maybe take notes um, and, and work with me through this. So, so we're gonna, there, there's four points um, that, that run through this. So, so first, verses one and two, we're gonna see learning from the wanderers. Okay, learning from the wanderers, verses one and two. Second, we'll see understanding God's rest, which is there in verses three and five. Then third, we'll see God's rest remains, which is in verses six through 10. And then finally, the, the closing verses, we see God's word is either rest, giving, or judgment inciting. So God's word, either rest or judgment, we're gonna see in those last verses. So first, verses one and two, learning from the wanderers. And so if, as we come to chapter four, as we look at verses one and two, we remember that chapter three of Hebrews opened with this comparison between Moses as a faithful servant in God's house, and Jesus as the faithful son over his house. Do you remember several weeks ago, that was the comparison. Jesus is, is over God's house as the son, but Jesus, or Moses was just faithful in God's house as a servant. And the point was to show Jesus is superior, far superior to Moses. At the end of chapter three, into our passage here in chapter four, the comparison shifts from the leaders, from Moses and Jesus, to, to those who are led by the leaders, Moses and Jesus, to the followers, so that those who are led by Moses, specifically the wilderness generation, are being compared to those being led by Christ, the, the Christians who are receiving this letter uh, from, from the author of Hebrews. And the main point of contrast, the thing that these verses focus on, is the failure of this group of people led by Moses. And it focuses on their failure to enter the rest in order to warn the followers of Jesus from failing in the same way. That's the comparison. It started with, with Moses and Jesus, and it, 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 it trickles down to the followers. And this comparison, comparing the wilderness generation with the followers of Jesus, the author aims to make perfectly clear that this failure of this generation, they failed to benefit from God's promises to them. They didn't, they didn't enter the rest. They didn't benefit from being recipients of God's promises. That's why chapter three ended with the questions, who was it who heard and rebelled? It was those who, who were delivered from slavery in Egypt by Moses. Well, who was the Lord provoked with? It was those who fell in the wilderness. Who did the Lord swear wouldn't enter his rest? It was those who were disobedient. These people were unable to enter, author of Hebrews says, and David in Psalm 95 says, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They heard, they experienced, they were led by God's servant, one of God's greatest servants, and yet they failed to reach their goal. They didn't persevere. And it's their failure, their inability to enter the promised rest that serves as a warning for the followers of Jesus. And so author of Hebrews wants us to know, he wants his readers to know that perseverance is required, that, that continued faith is non-negotiable when it comes to receiving or benefiting from God's promises, from God's word. That's the comparison that, that he's working out here. And he does so look there in verse one. 
He draws out this comparison. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, which which is something that was covered last week, but we're going to reiterate here in a few verses, but since that promise of entering still stands, let us fear, the author says, let us be careful, let us watch out, lest any should seem to have failed to reach it, lest any of you do the same thing that the Wilderness Generation did. Or the NIV says, let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And so this is his warning, be careful. Be careful so that you don't fail to finish the journey. Be careful, he says, because a promise that rest is still open is also a warning that it's possible not to reach it. He's going to say, God's rest is still available. But you better be careful because just because it's available doesn't mean you're guaranteed to enter into it. You must be sure to persevere so that you enter it. So it's a promise, yes, but with that promise, as we'll see in the last verses, it's also a warning. I mean, just stop and think about this wilderness generation who is our case study. They beheld time after time after time the miraculous deliverance and miracles performed by the Lord. I mean, from slavery to Egypt and all that came after, they crossed the Red Sea led by mighty Moses. They beheld miraculous provisions and God's patience with them, yet their deliverance ended in their falling in the wilderness. Their deliverance, it started so promisingly. The sea was parted. They crossed through. The the Egyptian armies were destroyed and, and they're being led. It was such a positive, promising start. Yet it ended with dead bodies in the wilderness. It ended in failure. All the hopes and dreams of the promised land were forfeited. As we consider the wilderness generation, if any generation was likely to keep the faith, it was them. And yet, there they lie, dead in the desert, short of the promised land. And they're a great case study because their experience speaks volumes. It speaks loudly. Their failure is to be instructive. And that's exactly what he does there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He explains the connection. For good news came to us just as it came to them. So the good news was different, but it's good news from God nonetheless. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So there's a comparison. God has spoken to that generation just like God has spoken to us now. That's that's how he started off the book of Hebrews. God's spoken to us through his son, finally, climactically, we've received the final word. So God has spoken to them too, just like he's spoken to us. But the message itself, the fact that God spoke, doesn't guarantee the benefit. Just because they heard the message didn't mean they automatically received the promise. As verse 2 says, the message they heard didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The, the reception of the message was not joined with faith. Now, in your, in your Bible there at the end of verse 2, there might be a little footnote that, footnote that says, well, some translations say this. So there's some question as to what the wording of that phrase should be. So, so the ESV says they weren't united by faith with those who listened, which would come across as they, they didn't have faith like the, maybe the two spies, like Joshua and Caleb. And so they say they weren't united by faith with those who listened. But a, a, an alternate possible translation would be that they're hearing was not with faith. 
which would, which would convey that they themselves didn't listen with faith. So that faith wasn't present in them. So, so those are two different possibilities. And, and there is a slight difference to, depending on what option you prefer, but there isn't really any difference in what the point is, which is simply that faith is what must be present in the hearer of God's promises. God, God's word must be received by faith. And, and the faith that receives it is faith that acts upon it. And so, so just because they heard, hey, hey, you're going to go to the promised land, they, they, they had to actually go into the promised land. They had to act. And their action was evidence of their faith. They're believing God. And they didn't act. They didn't believe God. And so they were cut short. They fell in the wilderness. And so, so they, they didn't benefit from the message. And this comparison, the authors wanted them to say, just because you've heard the word doesn't mean you're automatically going to benefit. You have to persevere. You have to be united by faith with the message that you've heard. One, one commentator put it this way, hearing God's voice brings wrath, not benefit to those who refuse to receive his message with submissive trust. Hearing God's voice brings wrath, not benefit to those who refuse to receive his message with submissive trust. That's what happened to the wilderness generation. It didn't benefit them. The rest that was promised to them was pointless when they're dead in the wilderness. And so I think the author of Hebrews wants his readers and he wants us to recognize the seriousness of the situation, especially them, whatever's going on there at the, to, the, to the Christians he's writing to. It's almost as if he wants them to see themselves in the same situation of the Israelites in Numbers 14. And, and he wants them to recognize, I have a really serious choice ahead of me. I can, I can persevere and I can, I, can, I, I can enter the rest. I can, I can hold fast to my confession or I can abandon Christ and I can walk away which would mean falling short. And I think he wants them. I think there's, we've talked about this in past, past weeks, I think there's a temptation, whatever the circumstances are, there's a temptation for the Christians to abandon Christ and abandon their confession. And he wants them to know you can't do that. Because to abandon Christ is to fall short and to not benefit from the word that's been spoken through the Son. And so the decision before them couldn't be more important or weighty. Perseverance is required. They must strive to enter that rest. Hearing God's promise in Egypt doesn't automatically get you to Canaan. You persevere. And that good news, the promise must be met and continually met with faith, or as as Dennis Johnson put it, submissive trust. Just like Will said last week, saving faith is persevering faith. So to believe God, to receive the promise is to persevere in believing. If faith is to be genuine, it will be persistent. Genuine faith never fails to enter the promise, to, to benefit from the promise. And so that's the lesson to be learned from the wanderers. We must receive the message with faith. Well, having shown the dangers of, of falling like the wilderness generation, the, the author then moves to God's rest in verses three through five. So look there at verse three and five. Now, the main point in these, these verses, this section, is understanding God's rest and how this functions in, in the larger passage is quite simple. And so I want to make it clear at the outset of, of a discussion on verses 3 through 5, the main point is that God's rest, which is what the author of Hebrews is calling for his readers to enter into, God's rest is a rest that existed long before the wilderness generation and, and continued to exist after the wilderness generation. So he, he, his main point is just, hey, God's rest is something that, that is, is far and wide. It's, it wasn't limited to Canaan and Joshua and Moses. That's his main point. He's going to establish the fact that God's rest began 
after day six of creation, and then it will continue indefinitely. So God's rest is something that, that indefinitely continues, which means it extended certainly over the period of the wilderness wanderings, but also continued to Psalm 95 and into today, which is today. And so, so that's his point, is just to establish that God's rest was not limited, but continues to be available to those who hear good news. And that's his whole point. God's rest is available. So well, you've heard good news from, uh, from the Son. You've heard good news, and, and you can enter into the rest now. In 2020, you can enter the news now because we've heard the good news that's come through the Son, and, and God's rest is available for us to enter into here and now. And so it, can, it continues to be available. That's the point he makes here. So let's see how we got there. Look there at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now that's the rest that was promised. We enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore, now he's quoting Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So in verse, two, in verse 3, he's, he's, the connection made in verse 3 is what he just established in verse 2, namely the connection between benefiting from the message when it's joined with faith. So we who believe enter that rest, he says. Now why? Why do we enter that rest? Because we have believed. So there's faith that has been joined with the receiving of the message. We have entered God's rest because we've believed what we've heard. At this point, we've trusted God. So, he, so there's a sense in which the Christian enters God's rest now. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. But we have believed has entered that rest, have entered that rest. That's the difference between the wilderness generation and those who receive it with faith. They've believed. And verse 3 continues, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, who is they that he's talking about in that quotation? They are the unbelievers in the wilderness. They shall not enter. Why? Because they lacked faith. Right? The good news didn't benefit them because it wasn't joined in faith, with faith in the hearers. So they didn't enter his rest. Right? So that's what he made. Now stay with me. What is the rest that they didn't enter? What is God's rest that's being discussed here? Now, you might think that it was Canaan, entrance, in, entrance into the promised land. That seems like a likely possibility until we in, read the end of verse 4. So, so verse 4, he quotes, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so it wasn't Canaan God's rest wasn't waiting for them in Canaan. The point is that God's rest existed long before Canaan and long before the wilderness wanderings. That's what it says, right? His works were finished, which means his, his rest had commenced from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, where, where does that come from? Where does that quotation come from? Where does it say that God rested on the seventh day from all his works? We, we just heard it. That's from Genesis, right? That's Genesis 2. I mean, listen, I'll reread Genesis 2, the, the first three verses of Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. And so God rested on the seventh day. That, that's clear, the clear teaching of Genesis 1 and 2. He was done with his work of creation. He was done. He rested. And in fact, as Will was reading through, I wonder if you caught this. In Genesis 1, in the creation account, did you notice what it said at the end of every day? 
So, so here's what happened. Here's what God created. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning third day. Evening, morning, fifth day. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And that's how Genesis chapter 1 ends. Morning and evening, that was the sixth day. And on the seventh day, what we just read, God rested. And that's it. No mention of evening, no mention of morning, no mention of the seventh day coming to an end. Day one closes, day two closes, day three closes, four closes, five closes, six closes, seven, there's no closing because God rested on the seventh. And it's an open-ended day, which means that God's rest is an open-ended rest. God entered into his rest and he is still in it now. And that's the point that he's making. God's rest commenced at day, after day six. So coming all the way back around, this rest that's first mentioned in Genesis 2-2 is a rest that's connected to the rest that the, Genesis, or that the wilderness generation failed to enter. It wasn't Canaan, it was God's rest that they could have entered. And they didn't. And that's a rest that's connected and mentioned by King David in Psalm 95. And so you see, all the way going all the way back to Genesis, the author of Hebrews is showing, is showing that the rest that his hearers are in danger of falling short of is God's rest, which existed before the wilderness generation and will exist as long as it is today, as long as there is word of good news from God. Which is why in verse 5, he mentions Psalm 95, 11 again. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. He mentions it again because once his hearers to know that God's rest was not something that passed with the wilderness generation. It didn't pass with King David, but instead, it remains. I mean, and so one of the assumptions that he makes here that, that, that can be confusing is he understands that when God says there's rest and when, when there's a group of people who fail to enter, it remains and it remains that some must enter that rest. These people didn't enter it, so there are, it's, it's given that there are some who are going to enter it at a later time. I mean, it's like if you ever, you've purchased a, a uh, what's the word, an, an auction. You go to an auction or a raffle ticket, and you have all your, if you buy five raffle tickets, you're looking at all of them, you're trying to, to, to keep track of your numbers, and they call a number. And then someone says, oh, I got it. And you're like, oh, man, didn't get that one. Right? But, but, but when someone call, when a number's called, and there's silence, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe they went home early. Maybe they didn't stick around. And so, so they call the number again. There, there's no response. And so you think, okay. And so, so the, the auctioneer will say, okay, going once, going twice. Okay, they didn't win the prize. This number forfeited. They didn't get it. And so you think, great, I, I still have a chance. It's still available. The prize wasn't entered into. And so the next number is called. And so until someone gets it, right, then, then that is, that's available. And so I think that's similar to the point he understands that this rest that was failed, that the Israelites, they didn't get the raffle ticket prize, which means that, that because they didn't, it was meant for other people. And so his point here is that God's rest is still available. And this rest, at least, at least at this point, is still very vague. There aren't many specifics or details being filled out. But the author of Hebrews, he's not set on working it out yet. 
At this point, he just wants to make sure that his readers and us recognize the necessity of entering that rest. It's still available and it must be entered into now. And we must enter it by submissive trust in God, in what the word that he spoke, in his promises. We must believe him and we must enter into it. We must do what is required of us. So the focus is entering in the rest, not so much the identifying the specifics of what the rest looks like. Which leads us to our, our third point. There are verses 6 through 10. There's the third point. God's rest remains. Verses 6 through 10. Look at there, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Right now he's playing off. It, it, it remains. Since it remains and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words I've already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Here again is the example of the wilderness generation being used to argue for the possibility, the necessity of people after them entering the rest, which means that God's rest didn't enter after entrance into Canaan. So if you remember, some of the Israelites did enter Canaan, but that wasn't the rest. The rest is a rest that continues. It remains for some to enter. And that's why the chance to enter failed to enter because of disobedience, And the continued existence of that rest, he says in verse 7, is seen in the use of the word today in Psalm 95. So here's where our timeline comes in. In Psalm 95, David says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts and and fail to enter the rest, which means that there's a rest available long after the wilderness generation as King David is writing Psalm 95. In that Psalm, David says, today. And And this entrance into the rest is available so long afterward as David is writing the wilderness people, wilderness generation had come and gone, but the rest remained. And so with the remaining rest, so also remained an invitation into that rest and a warning, don't miss it. Don't disobey. Don't fall short in the same way that the wilderness generation did. Verse eight, for if Joshua would have given them rest, if it was about Canaan, there wouldn't have been a later day in Psalm 95 that said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The later day was spoken of, and it meant that God's rest remained. It was still open, which is his whole point. God did speak of another day later on. God's rest was never intended to come through Joshua or David, but through the final word, the Son. And that Son and the rest he promises is the rest in the part is is a rest that is participation in God's own rest. That's the point there, verse nine. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's still there. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's the explanation of what does this rest look like? It's a rest that remains and it means resting from one's work as God did from his. So so there's the comparison. Enter into God's rest To enter into God's rest is to rest like God did on the seventh day. And it's only only entered into by hearing the word and benefiting from the word as it is joined to faith. And when you enter into that rest, you, you rest from your works. So that's clear. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's clear. What's not clear is what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to rest from his works? That's a question that I wrestled over and over and over and I still don't know the answer. What does it mean to rest from my works as God did? So because verse 10 says, whoever has entered God's rest, 
In other words, receive the word, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's joined with faith. I've entered into God's rest, which means that I rest from my works just like God did. The answer is not clear. I mean, I've got probably seven or eight books of authors who are much smarter than I who say different things about what exactly this means. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and you're welcome to disagree, because the main point of the passage isn't dependent upon how we answer this question. Right? This is the specifics of what the rest looks like. The answer is important, but doesn't change the fact that you should strive to enter that rest. So, so what does it mean in verse 9 and 10 when he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. Well, like I said, there's lots of options. Some people read this and say that the rest that's entered into is a rest from working or the works that would accompany us trying to earn our own salvation, which would mean that entering God's rest, becoming a Christian, entering the rest means resting from trying to save myself. Now, I certainly, that, that's a biblical truth. We're saved by grace, not by works. There's no role for human effort and works in, in the equation of salvation. So I agree with that, and that's central to the gospel, but I don't think that's his point here. I don't think works of salvation are, are intended here. I mean, not to mention that those who have ceased from trying to save themselves They don't rest from works, right? Works aren't specified. In fact, the entire Christian life could be said to be a life of good works. So we don't just rest. Remember that the example is God rested. He stopped working. He He didn't have to work anymore. It was done. So I don't think that's the point here. One commentator I read said that these verses aren't even referencing Christians. But instead... Whoever has entered the, God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. One author says, well, that's just talking about Jesus. That, that Jesus has rested from his work of salvation. And, and this author will say, well, that's why at the end of chapter 4, there's this focus on Jesus as the high priest. Now, that, that makes sense. I could maybe go there, but I, I don't think that's likely. I don't think that's the most probable answer. Another person pointed to several passages in Leviticus, which associated Sabbath rest with this day of atonement. So the Israelites, they would, they would, they would have a day of rest for the day of atonement and said, well, that was the old covenant. So in this, this, this new covenant, there's a new covenant day of rest, Sabbath, that has to do with the cleansing of sins that has been done by Christ. Again, that makes sense and that's possible, but again, I don't think that's the point. Instead, In my humble opinion, I think the point in regards to the rest, I think the mention of resting from works as God did from his, is a true, actual resting from our work. And I think that it's a rest that is only fully entered into when our race on earth is finished. I think it's a resting that's only fully entered into when we finish our race and we persevere in that rest. And so I think the resting here is a reference to a future rest that remains. It's yet to come. It remains, and it will remain until it's fully realized when God's people are with him in complete peace on that coming day. That's when we can rest like God rested. And so if you think about God on day seven, he had created everything, and all that was left to do was to enjoy his creation and that, that wasn't work, that was rest, that was enjoyment. And so for the believer, when that rest is entered into, we rest and we enjoy God forever. And it's not work, it's enjoyment. Even work that we do is not work, it's rest. 
And so that resting is future. And it's the day coming. And it's a rest that requires, and here's the point, it's a rest that requires action now. It's mainly future, but as we'll see, it's not only future. Because you have to recognize the rest, and this is what, this is what gave me the biggest trouble, is verse 3. If verse 3 wasn't there, I could say it's all future and have no qualms about it. But verse 3 says, we who have believed enter that rest. Which tells me it's something that we enter into now. Yes, it's future and mainly future and complete, completely realized in the future, but it's something we enter into now. So even though the main emphasis is future, though the full realization is, is when we finish our race here, whether we close our eyes in death or whether the Lord comes back, we ought to recognize that it begins here and now. It's something we can enter into now. And so it's, it's as though there, there are aspects of the future rest that's guaranteed because God's promised it, there are aspects of the future rest that reach back to us even here and now. Specifically aspects of our relationship with God that govern our life here and now. So as to say, we who have believed the good news will enter that rest then. It will happen for us, but we've also entered it, at least in part, now. So that our lives here and now are marked by aspects of that rest then. The aspects that are specifically mark, that specifically mark the life of the believer is confidence and trust in God. That, that's, that's the rest, enjoyment of him, a, a non-frenzied heart, a life that has peace, a peace that the Apostle Paul would say surpasses all understanding. We enter into that rest and experience those things really, genuinely, truly now. And it's because we have confidence and trust in God that he's going to give us rest then. And we can have peace and rest now that is, is genuine but won't be fully realized till then. So, so it's already here, but it's not yet here, if that makes sense. I think that's the point. And it's recognizing a future entrance, a full realization of that rest then that enables an enjoyment of that rest now. It's like the wilderness generation. They wanted to go in but they didn't believe that God was actually going to give it to them. So they stopped believing now and they didn't obey in accordance with it. With the, 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 the news didn't benefit them. They, they abandoned their faith. They didn't believe it. So if they would have been believing, they could have experienced the rest then and there and it would have led them into the promised land. And so recognizing a future entrance, a full realization of that rest then is what provokes or promotes trust and confidence in God here and now. Which is why understanding the failure of the wilderness generation, understanding the potential failure of the readers of this letter, and understanding what is required of us depends on recognizing that entrance into God's rest requires persistent faith. It requires persevering trust. Because the moment you stop trusting, the moment you lose confident hope in what God has promised you, that is the moment that your entrance into his rest is in jeopardy. Because you're not going to persevere if you don't believe it. If you don't believe the rest is coming, if you don't trust him or believe what he's promised, you begin to think that Egypt wasn't so bad after all. You begin to question God's ability to accomplish what he's promised. You begin to search for other means of accomplishing rest. And all those things are evidence that you're heading that you're heading away from, not towards God's rest. But as you persevere in faith, trusting God, 
you are heading in the right direction towards his promised rest. And so regardless of how you specifically understand what, what resting from your works means, the main point here is for the readers of Hebrews and for us to persevere and to trust or to believe in the good news that's come to them and has come to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ because this message from God, this good news, is the pathway to rest when it, was, when it, was, when it is received by faith. Do you, want, do you want to enter the rest? Do you want peace with God? Do you want, do you want to enjoy God forever? You, you do so by receiving the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing and acting in faithful obedience to it and putting your faith in the Son. And so that is the pathway to rest, but it is also, and we can't miss this, it's also the pathway to judgment if not received by faith, which is the point of our last section. So quickly, looking at verses 11 through 13, God's word, it either leads to rest or judgment. There in verse 11, there's an imperative. It's a call to action. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Why? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive. Let us make every effort. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. There's a necessity of focusing on and aiming at entering that rest And the means of entering, if you notice, is obedience. It's submissive trust in the one who promotes this active faith. It's faith in action because, notice, it's the case because the same sort of disobedience is what prevents interest into the rest. They didn't obey. They didn't enter into the rest. They didn't enter into the promised land. That was the disobedience. They didn't believe God. They didn't act in accordance with what they'd been promised. And so the disobedience of the wilderness generation is a disobedience that refused to enter because they didn't believe God's promises. They heard God's promises, but their hearing was dull. It was not accompanied by faith and it didn't lead to confidence in God. And instead, their hearing led to disobedience and rebellion. And ultimately, their hearing of the message is what led to their judgment in the desert. And so author of Hebrews wants his readers to know and he wants us to know that if we aren't careful, if, if we aren't striving to enter that rest, if we're not, if we're not hearing and, and obeying in response to the message we've heard, if we're not holding fast to the good news of, of the gospel, if we aren't clinging to Christ and to our confession, if we're not doing those things, if we're not intentional about that, then we will fall short of that rest. But if we do strive to enter that rest, if we do hold fast our confession and maintain confidence in God, then we do enter it here and now, and that will help us persevere until we fully enter into it then. Which means that perseverance is dependent upon a faith that holds fast to God's good news that has come through Christ. And if not entering the rest scares you, as maybe it ought to, hear this good news. The one who holds fast to Christ continually and consistently never has to fear falling short of God's rest. Do you want to enter the rest? Well, hold fast to Christ. Are you afraid of not entering? Well, then don't forsake Christ. Don't neglect him. Holding fast to Christ, the one who holds fast to Christ never has to fear falling short of God's rest because holding fast to Christ is the obedience that's required by the good news, which is why he's going to spend the next few verses of chapter 4 saying we have a high priest. Let us draw near to him. That's the good news. That's the hope of this passage, that we can enter the rest. We don't have to end up like the wilderness generation, but these verses end with a sober warning. Look at verses 12 to 13. We're, we're not going not to cover all these in depth because the point is, is pretty self-explanatory. 
So verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of mirror, of in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all instead are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, now this is a sober warning. It's a sober word of warning because God's word, the news that came to the Israelites in the desert, is what led to their falling there in the desert. God's word of promise, when it wasn't acted upon and believed, is what led to their judgment. So the word of promise, the word of rest, ended up being the word of judgment for them. The same word that promised rest ended up bringing death, which, which really changes how we typically view these verses about God's word, right? Maybe you have these on a doily in, in your house. God's word is living and active, and it's a, a bright with flowers. That's not the context here. Like God's word as living and active is a scary thing in this context because it's God's word that promised rest when it wasn't received with faith and acted upon led to judgment. I mean, if I were to paraphrase verse 11 and 12, it'd be something like this. We better make sure to believe what God has said to us through his son because God's word of promise, God's good news, isn't something we can just take or leave. God's word is powerful and you can't escape it. If it isn't believed, if we turn away from it, it will judge us and we will never escape. And the wilderness generation is a tragic example of those who experience the judgment of God's powerful, inescapable word. They will rise up and say, it is living and active and it is sharp and it does destroy and discern and expose. One commentator points out that the sword imagery here emphasizes that while God's word is a word of promise to those who would enter God's rest, it is also a discerning word of judgment Verse 12 asserts that like a sword that cuts and thrusts, the word penetrates and divides, being able to reach into the depths of a person's inner life. The word that has come from God, the message that we've heard, must be believed. There's no fooling the God who spoke it. There's no tricking the all-knowing one. And those who receive this message, the good news of the gospel, and who don't respond... By holding fast, they stand totally exposed, vulnerable, and naked before him. They stand exposed to whom they must give an account. And therein lies the danger. God, the one to whom we stand accountable, has provided the rest for us. He has done it. He sent his son. He's accomplished the salvation of his people. And we ought to dread the thought that one day we will stand before him who has made a way for us and be forced to tell him, I refuse to believe the message. I refuse to persevere in believing that Jesus was enough for me. I refuse to believe that, that you could offer me rest. Can you imagine standing before him on that day saying, I forsook Christ. I knew the, I knew the gospel. I knew the good news. I believed it as a child. I believed it as an adult. But at the end, I, I, I just fell short. I refuse to persevere. Friends, the word from God is not to trifle with or it's not to be taken lightly or to forsake. We must enter God's rest and we must do so by faith or by submissive trust, by obedient, persevering faith. And we enter God's rest. Here's the sermon in a sentence. We enter God's rest by looking to Christ. We enter God's rest by believing and trusting in the son who has come. 
And that's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the call to look to Christ and to rest. I, I, here, here, I found this quote this morning from, from Corey Tinboom, a, a, a great sister, a, a giant of the faith. And, and here's a quote that, that she said that I think is a great way for us to end, and I'm going to pray. But she says, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. If you look at the world, you're going to be distressed. Is it, could that be any truer than it is today in 2020? If you look at the world, you're going to be distressed. If you look within, right, a lot of people will say, that's a solution, look within. She says, if you look within, you'll be depressed. The only solution, if you look to Christ, that is the only place to look to find rest. And that's the call of this text. So let, let me pray um, as, as we close.